The reading is Judges chapter 6, verses 1 to 12, which is on page 247 in the Church Bibles. That's Judges 6, 1 to 12, on page 247. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them from their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. When the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians, and I delivered you from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not listened to me. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak of Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abiezrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a winepress to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Well, good morning, and it's uh, good to be with you today. Very uh, pleased to be here. Four weeks ago, three weeks ago, Dave gave a really good overview of the book of Judges. And it was really helpful. But if you weren't here at that time, and you may be visiting today, let me just give you uh, a quick, very brief look at uh, Judges, because that's where we're going to be this morning. And we need to put it in historical context, really. Judges comes in the Old Testament between Joshua and the settlements in Canaan, which included, for those of you who might not know much about it, the, the fall of Jericho, and then the, the establishment of the monarchy in Israel of uh, people like Saul, David, and, uh, and going on Samson, uh, Sam, not Samson, <laughs> That was, that was the wrong book. Uh, anyway, it's the kings, okay? So it comes, it comes in there. You can tell I'm nervous. Can I just pray? Let me just pray, can we? Father, I want to pray that you'd help us, Lord, uh, help me. I think this is a great text. Have victory through weakness is a great thing to have. And uh, Lord, uh, we are weak. We don't deserve anything really, but you, you, you walk with us. That little phrase, the Lord is with you, is just a wonderful phrase. And I pray it would just be branded on our hearts and minds today, and we go away knowing that you don't leave us on our own, and you are with us. So we ask it in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Okay, <clears throat> so we've seen where Judges is. In Judges chapter 2, you get an overview of the book. And, and what it is, is there's a series of cycles that happen. And the people have left God. They've rejected him. He's brought them out of Egypt, led them through the, the, the wilderness, given the promised land. Joshua's led them all these years. And it's a great thing to do. But they've turned their backs on God. Apostasy means the abandonment of true faith. And so they turn their backs on him. And, and nations that are around them, surrounding them, invade the territory all the time. And they make life really difficult for these people. And so what happens is they, they, they get to a point where they cry out to God. They just realise and they just need help. And God says, okay, I'll help you. That's his grace, nothing but grace. And he sends them a deliverer, a judge, a rescuer, a helper. And he brings the people together and they, they, they get rid of the enemies, it were, and the, the, the land has peace for a number of years. And it's good. But as soon as the judge dies, the people turn their backs on God and they go back to, to worshipping idols and they forget the Lord. And it's a cycle and it happens all the time. And it's behind you there. You've probably seen it as I've been going through. This is it. There were seven cycles over 330 years. That's the period of the judges. From about 1380 to 1050, 1030 BC. Okay? <clears throat> 3,000 years ago. And there were seven cycles. And it was just a steady progression of apostasy for the people. That's where they were. That's the background. We're going to look at Gideon today. And Gideon is... Uh, one, one of the judges, he comes uh, within the book. But, but the thing to remember is as well that the last five chapters of Judges describes the nation as a whole. And it describes them as, as a corrupt and immoral and godless nation. And you don't think about God's people in that way. But this is what they were like. This was reality. And it was an awful place to be. But the fun thing, the fantastic thing is that right in the middle of all that happening, there's a book and it comes after Judges and it's called Ruth. And Ruth is the story of love and loyalty and a people, a family who seek to follow God right in the middle of all this apostasy and corruption. And it's a lovely story. So we have to take some encouragement that even in the middle of all this that was happening, this forgetting of the Lord, there were people within the nation who did not forget God. So to take that as an encouragement, okay? But looking at Gideon this morning, and, and it's found in Judges 6, and we're going to start uh, in verse 11. Thanks, Claire, for reading the first 12 verses. That was great. That's the context. Remember, seven years the Midianites have been invading the land. Seven years. The Israelites were starving because the Midianites came at the beginning of the harvest and they wrecked the crops. And the ones they didn't wreck, they came at harvest time and they took the harvest away. 
the people were really scared. I can't tell you, if you read about the Midianites and the Amalekites, they were a nasty bunch of people. They did terrible things to people. I mean, they really were a god of society. And they did awful things. So, you know, the, the Israelites, these people were afraid of them. There was real fear here. But this is Hebrews, uh, Judges 6, starting... Uh, um, no, it isn't. It's not. This is no. I've missed a section out. Sorry. I'll, I'll, I'm, uh, I'll come back. The thing to remember about Gideon is that for all we're going to learn about him, and he wasn't a great guy. He was a good man, but he wasn't a great guy. For all we're going to learn about Gideon, the mistakes he made, he still came in Hebrews 11 in the Hall of Faith. The writer to the Hebrews says. And what more shall I say? I don't have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson and Jephthah, David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith, listen, conquered kingdoms, administered justice, gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, escaped the edge of the sword. This is Gideon, listen, whose weakness was turned to strength and became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. This is Gideon. So whatever we're going to learn about him, remember, he's still in the hall of faith. He was a man of faith. And now we're getting to the story itself. <laughs> okay? And we're going to consider two main aspects to the story. The first one is we need to learn to trust God in my weakness. That's Judges 6, 11 to 7, 23. And then beware of the results of success. We get, that's Judges 8, 22 to 35. So we're going to start with the commission. This is Judges chapter 6, verse 11. And we pick up at the, the end of the reading uh, that we had. The angel of the Lord came and sat down on the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abedrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in the winepress to keep from the Midianites. And at this point you realise that the key to understanding Gideon and the narrative we're going to follow is right here in the first discussion of the angel with Gideon. It's right here. This sets the scene for the rest of the time. Okay? So he says, when the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Pardon me, my Lord. I've always thought that was very British. <laughs> <coughs> I'm sure it isn't. I'm sure there's something in the original that would suggest it. But it just sounds very kind of quaint to me. Anyway, pardon me, my Lord, uh, Gideon replied, but if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all these wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord's abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied. But how can I save Israel? My clan's the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down the Midianites, leaving none alive. Now, I think, you know, I read this at the beginning, I thought, this is almost humorous. You've got to understand, seven years of having their harvest wrecked has brought real fear into the people of Israel, and Gideon is found in the wine press threshing wheat. Can I tell you, you don't thresh wheat in a wine press. You just don't do it. It's hard work. You get it outside and you let the wind do its job for you. 
not in a wine press. He's there because he's afraid. And the Lord comes and says, the Lord is with you, you mighty warrior. I just kind of, and I laughed. I mean, I remember reading this years ago when I was a student and just laughing. And I thought, well, either God has a very, very odd sense of humour, and I can't believe that really, or there's something else about this, which is that God looks on the heart and not on the present circumstance. He looks at what a person could be, will be, all the promise that they have to be, rather than what they're doing right now. And I think that's some encouragement in that. But what's interesting is, and this is the key, Gideon didn't hear mighty warrior. What he heard was, the Lord is with you. And he says, no, he wasn't. And he says to the angel very clearly, no, he wasn't. And he refers back to the slavery in Egypt and coming out. And he said, every time we hear about the nation, all we hear is, God brought us out of Egypt, gave us the promised land. No, but God has abandoned us. He's not with us. Where was God when the Midianites came to steal the harvest? Where was God when the, when, when, when the Midianites came and wrecked the crops at the beginning? Where has he been for seven years? No, the Lord isn't with us. Now, that's not the British way of saying it. Gideon was very polite. But that's what he was saying. In reality, that's exactly what he was saying. Don't you think that's contemporary? Don't you think that when things go wrong and things happen in our lives and we don't understand them and we don't like them because actually they make us very uncomfortable and we don't like the way we're feeling about things that are happening to us. We don't talk about Egypt and slavery and release and promised land. We don't do that. We do other things instead. So we think, where's the Lord gone? He's left me. He's abandoned me. I'm on my own. Why my own? Why has the Lord abandoned me? Because you feel on your own. You, I mean, you're looking at you're sitting there ever so quietly and nicely. Listen, if you've never felt it, I'd be really surprised. I remember several times in my life when things have happened, and my first response is, "Where's the Lord?" And that's Gideon. That's him. But the second time you see, the angel says, listen, the Lord is with you. Go in the strength you have. It's okay. And he says, no, pardon me, Lord, but it's not okay. I'm not the person. I, you know, yes, it is, but, but look, look who I am. I'm weak. I don't, I don't even, I'm not a leader in the nation. And he says, third time, I'm with you. I'm with you. And then he says, Ah, really? Is that so? In that case, in that case, give me a sign. Would you give me a sign? Verse 17 of chapter 6. Now notice this. Gideon never questions the commission. He never says to God, no, I won't do it. Or, no, I'm not interested. Choose somebody else. Whatever. He never says that. The commission itself to go and free the people from the Midianites is never in question for for Gideon. It's all about 
whether God can be trusted to help him because he can't do it on his own. It's who is the God who is helping him because his experience of God thus far over the last seven years is that God is not with them and he's not interested. He's left them. He's abandoned them in the words of Gideon. So in verse 17 he says, give me a sign. And actually, as the narrative progresses, we realise there are three signs. God gives him three signs. Two, Gideon asks for, and one, the Lord offers to Gideon as a sign. So we're going to go through them, okay? Very briefly, here we go. Here's the meal. 6.18. This is, there is some fun here, okay? There is some humour here. There really is. So he says, please don't go away until I come back and bring my offering and set it before you. And the Lord said... I will wait until you return. Okay? Now, if you read on, keeping the Lord waiting is an understatement. He goes and he kills a goat. And he has to get some meat off the goat. Then he has to cook the meat. He has to make the bread. Now, I'm not a chef. I won't pretend. Linda's great. I, love, I don't make meals. It's, I wash up. Do you know what I mean? And I, but, but it seems to me that if you're going to do that kind of meal and prepare it, that is not short living. That takes time. So for the Lord to wait, as he said he would do, is quite something really. Don't you think that's gracious of the Lord? Not to say, no, I'm going away, I'll see you in a couple of days, you know. No, not at all. He says, yes, I'll wait. So he waits, and all the time it took him to make the meal, making this meal, he brings it eventually, a a stew in a pot, along with with the bread that he's made, and he brings it out, and and the angel says, put it on the rock there. So he puts it on a rock, and the angel just touches the rock with the staff he's holding, and not to make too fine a point on it, he barbecues it. He says, flames come from the rock and consume the whole thing. And it's an amazing thing. And then, then, the penny begins to drop in Gideon's thinking. And he says, I've seen the Lord. I'm about to die. Because, of course, to be in the presence of the Lord is not a good thing. It brings fear for people. Unforgiven. It's death, you know. And the, and the Lord says, no, no, don't worry. You won't die. But what begins to take place in Gideon's mind is that he's actually in the presence of the Lord. So all this thing he's been saying, you know, the Lord isn't with us, the Lord has abandoned us, who, you know, who is this God who's going to help us? Actually, he's in his presence because the Lord is with him and he didn't know it. So that's the meal. In the meantime, the Midianites, along with the Amalekites and other uh, nations around them as well, have invaded. They've crossed the Jordan and they've come to camp in the, camp in the valley of Jezreel. And it's, it, there, there's, there's thousands of them. I mean, you read it, it doesn't give you a number. I read one book that gave me a number, but I can't figure out where they got it from. It said there were 135,000 Midianites and Amalekites. Don't know where they got that from. But it does say in the text, they were like locusts in a field. And you, and you couldn't even count the number of chariots they had. They were more than the grains of, on, the, on, the, on the beach of just chariots they had. 
And they came in their numbers. And they, they invaded. And then it says in 634, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. And that's really important. It is so important. When, if, you, if ever you want to do a little study for yourself, get, get yourself a, 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 a concordance and look up the Spirit of the Lord comes on. And just see the people in the Old Testament that the Spirit of the Lord came on. And it's very special because he, God gave his Spirit to those he commissioned to do certain things. And it says the Spirit of the Lord came on Gideon. And what he did was he sent messengers out all over the land for men to come and fight with him against the Midianites. And then we come to the second one. Because Gideon starts again. This is the second of the signs. This is the fleece. We all know about the fleece, don't we? People refer to the fleece. Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand as you've promised, look, I'll place a wool fleece on the, fresh, on the threshing floor. If there's dew on the, on the fleece and the ground is dry, then I will know you'll save Israel by my hand as you said. And that's what happened. Gideon rose early the next day. He squeezed the fleece and wrung out the dew, a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, don't be angry with me. Let me just make one more request. This time, this time, I'd like the fleece dry and the ground wet. Now, you know, I mean, just, bear, just think about the law for a minute, okay? He's asked him to do a job. And he's given him a sign already. He's, you know, over the meal, his presence is with him. And, and, and now he's done what he asked about the feast the first time. And Gideon is still, he's, God is looking to reassure him. There's a reassurance here. And so he does. And, and he, he says, God, that night, God did it. And only the fleece was dry and all the ground was covered with dew. Now then, here's the point. The point of the sign was not to help him know if he should go and defeat the Midianites. That's not the point. The point of the sign was, who is this God who is sending me? And can I trust him? Is he powerful enough for me to do what he wants me to do? Because I need help. And actually, it is quite significant. Because I have to say, over the years, many years, probably too many years, I suppose, I've heard too many people say to me, oh, I didn't know if God wanted me to do something, so I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to put a fleece out. Wrong action. You don't put a fleece out to find out what God wants you to do. You put a fleece out to find out who God is. Because it's the person of God that is important. If you're going to do what God wants you to do, you've got to know he's with you. And he's the God Almighty. And in this case, he's the God of nature. Because Jew goes everywhere, fleeces as well, but it didn't. And it really reassured him. So we need to be careful we don't misuse signs. Seeking a sign is not about decision-making. In fact, it's interesting, isn't it, that when Satan came to Jesus in Matthew chapter 4, do you remember he was on the mountaintop, uh, on, and, uh, on the top of the temple, and he said, throw yourself over, you know, see it. And, and Jesus' reply was, you do not test the Lord your God. Don't test him. Not like that. 
So we need to be a bit careful with these things and uh, be careful how it goes. So we come now to... Uh, uh, we've, had, we've had that. Sorry, I've just turned over two pages. <laughs> that didn't help. So we've had the fleece. So now we come to this. The next day, 32,000 men appear to fight with Gideon. This is great. This would make a great film. If there's any film producers in, in this morning and you want to make a film, make it The Life of Gideon. It is a great film. Uh, and we would make a great film. It's a great story. 32,000 men come from all over Israel to fight with him. And he's great. He's so pleased. You can tell. Except God says to him, too many men. So he says, oh, he said, if they're afraid, tell them to go home. So Gideon, fair enough, he trusts the men, he said, if you're afraid, go home. 22,000 went home. 22,000. Now, I, you know, the, the text doesn't tell us how Gideon felt, but I've got to tell you how I would feel, okay? I've got 32,000 men fighting for me, with me. And 22,000 go home, and I'm with 10,000 to fight the Midian army. And I'm thinking, I'm not sure I like this. And God says to him, still too many men. Still too many men. So he said, take him down to the river to drink. So they go down to the river, and, and presumably in bunches of whatever you can count, he says, drink. There's two ways you can drink from water in a river. One is you kneel down, put your head in, and you drink water directly through your mouth from the river. The other one is you kneel down, put your hand in, scoop water up, and you drink this way. Okay? That's, that was the plan. And so he said, uh, that's what you divide me. So you can just, just imagine now. 10,000 you know, 10, men, all right? Drinking. So Gideon's there saying, there. Stand 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 there, stand there, stand there, stand there, stand there. 9,700 on this side, 300 on this side. And he's thinking, I think he's thinking, great, got 9,700 at least. And God says, no, they go home. They go home. We'll keep the 300. I'll do this with 300. Now, what is happening here? What is happening? Well, there are two things happening. First of all, the honour and glory for this victory is going to be God's. And, and he says to, to Gideon, if you win this battle with 32,000 men, you're going to say, we did this, I did this, aren't we great? And I won't have that. I'm doing this for you, so send them home. So the first thing is the honour and glory of God. Isaiah 48, 6. 42.8, sorry. Isaiah 42.8 says, I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I give to no other. God is very precious about his glory and his honour. And they had, they had to go. The second thing is that Gideon had to learn to trust the God who commissions him. And it was a great lesson to have to learn. And he's learning it. It's coming. It's getting there. So Gideon is camped on the hilltop above the valley of Jezreel and he's there with his 300 men and they go to bed and in the night God wakes up 
Not quite whose that is. It's not mine. Oh, of course. Sorry, I've just knocked something off. Um, so, uh, yeah, he wakes up and God says to him, tonight is the night for victory. Okay? Tonight's the night for victory. You're going to do it tonight. Win the battle. And then this is the sign that God gives Gideon. This is a sign of real graciousness on God's part. Just thoughtfulness and care. Just to reassure him. He says, if you're afraid, Gideon, go down to the camp of the Midianites and listen. Go on your own and listen. So he did, because he's afraid. I mean, there is a fear, isn't there? There's a natural, inborn fear. Of course there is. He's got an army of, I don't know, how many thousands of men against him. He has 300. And I know God said they'll win, but there's a fear. So he goes down to the camp. And then we come to the third sign, because this is what God gives him. And it's the dream. It's in Judges 7, verse 13. Gideon arrived uh, to the, at the camp, just as, as a man, one of the guards, was telling a friend of his dream. He said, I had a dream. A round loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the Midianite camp. It struck the tent with such force, the tent overturned and collapsed. And his friend responded, this guard's friend responded, this can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash, the Israelite. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands. When Gideon heard the dream's interpretation, he bowed down and worshipped. Of course he did. Wouldn't you want to worship a God who just promised you victory with 300 men? Tonight? Because they were persuaded they were going to lose? And he said, get, so he goes back to him and says, get up, the Lord has given the Midianite camp into your hands. So he has these 300 men. He gives the 300 men a jar to hold, and in the jar is a torch, a lighted torch, but it's hidden by the, by the jar. And in his other hand, a trumpet. Now, I don't think these were unusual men. I think they were normal men with two hands. There is no mention of swords. Have you noticed? Swords do not come into the story. So these 300 men, with their jar in one hand and their trumpet in the other, go down to the camp and they, they go round the camp. They put, he puts them into groups and they go round the camp, the Midianite camp. And he says, follow me, my instruction. And at a certain point, he smashes the torch, at the lamp, so the torch is seen, blows the trumpet, and they shout for the Lord and for Gideon. 300 men. I don't know how many, I, we, we could do this, but I'm not going, I'd love to do this, but those with hearing aids would hit the ceiling. No, we won't do it. I'd love to have you shout, because actually, it is a great thing. This was a real noise they made. Terrific noise. And what happens is, the Midianites wake up. Well, of course they do. They've got trumpets all over the place. As they come out of the camp, there's, there's lights all around the camp. And their assumption is, the Israelites are in the camp. Because they see others running around and they think they're the Israelites. They're not. They're the Midianites and the Amalekites and they're fighting each other. And they start to, there's a terrific slaughter takes place. And they start to kill each other and slaughter each other until they realise there's not many left and they run. They start to run. And Gideon and his 300 men 
follow them and chase them out of, of Israel. And there's a lovely phrase in, uh, in the RSV, and it says, they went faint yet pursuing. <laughs> that's, that's Gideon's men, faint yet pursuing. They didn't have a lot to offer, but they went anyway. And they chased them out of the land. Now, there's a section we're not going to look at. Uh, just, it's, uh, it's, we don't need to. It, it, he has some confrontation with some of his own people. We're going, to, we're going to leave that, if that's okay. But I want you to tell you, this is not unusual. This is not unknown in biblical history. Because if you go to 2 Chronicles 20, which is some books further on than, than Judges, you come to a king called Jehoshaphat. What a name that is. Jehoshaphat, in 2 Chronicles 20, is king of Israel. And there are three armies come against Israel. Three very distinct armies, all coming to invade at the same time. And Jehoshaphat doesn't know what to do, because he can't possibly cope with three armies uh, and, and defeat them. So he, he, he gathers all the people together, and he prays. And he says, to, he says, Lord, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. And God says through a prophet to Jehoshaphat, listen, Jehoshaphat, tomorrow morning, get the people together, get your army together, and you go out of the city onto the hilltop and watch me fight for you. So he does. And to his credit, he puts the orchestra first. Sorry, guys, you'll be first to fight. No, he put the orchestra at the beginning with the choir, all right? And then the army follow behind and the people come on and they go to the hilltop and spread out in the valley of the three armies that are going to fight them. And, and what has to happen is they fight each other instead. These three armies wipe each other out. And then Joshua sends his army to mop up. So this is not unusual. Got it? This happens again. This is not unique in, in, in Israel's history. That God does something for them without them doing a thing. They don't need to do anything but trust him. But they've got to trust him. When God asks us to do something, when he commissions us, whatever it is, I'm not, you know, it might not be, I'm never going to fight an army. You know what I mean? I don't carry a sword with me. And it's just not, it's not like that. But when God commissions us to do something, when he asks us to do something, whatever it is, whatever it is, it's not unusual for us to have questions. I think we have questions. I, you know, I remember saying to the Lord one time, why, 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 why am I doing this? Why do you want me to do that? And it's not unusual. God is patient with people who have questions. He is very patient with people who have questions. Questions is not a problem. Uncertainty is not a problem. If you take Moses in Exodus chapter 3 and 4, do you remember Moses? What was the commission? Bring my people out of Egypt, because they were slaves. And he has the longest conversation in the Bible anyone has with God in the whole of the Bible. It's one and a half chapters, Exodus 3 and 4. It's a massive conversation as with the Lord over it. And Gideon just says, and sorry, Moses says, his first question is, who are you to ask me to do this? And his next question is, who am I that you're asking me to do it? And the next question is, what am I going to say? And the next question is, will they believe me? And he just asks question after question after question. And God patiently and graciously answers them until the 
fifth, the fifth thing Moses says, and he says, please send someone else. And God says, now I'm angry. God can cope with our uncertainty. He can cope with a lot of questions we have. He can cope with, with, you know, is God big enough to cope with what he's asking me to do? That's not a problem for him. He just wants our availability. He wants us to be able to say, us to be able to say, Lord, I'll do that, but you've got to help me. I think one of the most encouraging little phrases in the New Testament is in Matthew 28 in the Great Commission. Do you remember that? Jesus calls the, the, the disciples up to up a mountain top to meet him. And he says, when they arrive, Matthew 28, I think it's, uh, 18, and he says, he comes up to the mountain and he says, they, when they saw him, they worshipped, but some doubted. That little phrase, but some doubted, is one of the greatest phrases in the Bible. Because Jesus still commissioned them. Jesus doesn't wait for us to be convinced. He can help us to understand who he is and that he'll be with us. He can cope with that. He can cope with our doubt and our questions. It's our availability that's the issue for him. Now then, the thing to do is don't confuse, don't confuse uh, weakness with cowardice or disobedience. We need to be careful here because we're talking about weakness through victory, uh, victory through weakness, sorry. We don't confuse weakness with cowardice or disobedience. Paul, in the New Testament, is a model of courage and obedience to his commission. His commission was, God said, I'm going to send you to the Gentiles. That was his commission, okay? The outcome for Paul was the rejection by his own people, imprisonment by the Romans, and deep suffering. This man went through deep suffering. I was going to say something else, but I won't. Deep suffering. So in 1 Corinthians 2, 3, we read, I came to you, says Paul, in, in weakness with great fear and trembling. Then in 2 Corinthians 11, he says, if I must, if I must boast, I'll boast of the things that show my weakness. Paul was not embarrassed by his weakness. Weakness is the acknowledgement of my inability to do what God has asked me to do. That's all it is. I acknowledge it. I can't do it. Lord, help me. And it's not wrong to be weak. It's strong to be weak. Because in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, Paul writes this. My, uh, what the God said to him, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I'll boast all the more gladly, says Paul, about my weaknesses, so the power of Christ may rest on me. And the commentary on Gideon in Hebrews 11 is that his weakness was turned to strength. Got it? Sure? Because we're going to move on very quickly to the last one. This is fast. You ready? It is fast. Beware of the results of success. The people feeling safe. They're feeling safe again, aren't they? Of course they are. The Midianites are no longer in the land. They're defeated. They're killed. They're gone. And they're safe. So they say to Gideon, rule over us. Be our king. Actually, they say, and your sons after you. 
You can start a dynasty. Uh, chapter 8, verse 22, that. Gideon's response is fantastic. He has a fantastic response to it. I will not rule over you, he says. The Lord will rule over you. Isn't that a good... Don't you think that's fantastic? That's great. This is a guy who's just led the people in battle and he's... You know, I will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. That's good. However, this is the last time the Lord is mentioned at all in this narrative. And unfortunately, what he rejects in principle, he lives out in reality. Because he behaves like a king. He says to the people, give me some of the gold from the plunder. And he amasses a huge fortune, real wealth. And, and he sets up an alternative place of worship for the people, which is the significance of the ephod. He makes an ephod. An ephod was the garment the priests wore. It was a very special garment the priests had. And he made an ephod. And, and, it, and that, it actually, in truth, led the people away from God, not to God, as it should have done. And he had many wives. And he had many concubines, mistresses in our own language. And one of them, by one, he had a son. And he called him Abimelech. Do you know what Abimelech means? My father is king. So what he rejected in principle of ruling over the people, he behaved like it in practice. It didn't affect his life. He still behaved that way. And his actions in in verse 27 of chapter 8 says it became a snare for him. A snare is a trap. It entrapped him in a way of living that wasn't right. And success can be a snare. Outwardly, we say, you know, the right thing, but our actions don't always correspond. Deuteronomy 8 is a fantastic little passage on this. And it talks about success and the dangers of success. And he says, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, when your herds and flocks grow larger, your silver and gold increase, and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord. That wasn't just true in Deuteronomy's time. That was true in Gideon's time and it's true in our time. It is so true. It is a massive danger. Massive danger. And we need to be careful that in our prosperity, and you think, you know, yeah, I mean, I thought Jonathan prayed really well. Thanks, Jonathan, for that. And that you prayed about the people who are struggling financially. In the country, yeah, there are many, aren't there, struggling financially. But I've got to tell you, we are wealthy. <laughs> you go someplace in the world and you think, you know, it is something else. And I think the wealth we have, even though we struggle financially, and it's a hard thing, it can, it can, it can make us immune from dependency on God, from looking to him to help us. Because we think we've made it. The strength of my arm has done this. Because Deuteronomy 8 develops it. and They they start to say, my wisdom, my strength has got me this, this, this money, this wealth. And God says, no, you're wrong. No, I did. I gave it to you. You're a steward. 
only a steward, not an owner. And I think, I think it's difficult. Gideon is a great illustration of the fact that success has dangers to it and can be a snare. Now, week by week, it's been pointed out that judges are a shadow of Christ who is to come. But we learn something about Jesus in these pages. But I don't think, I mean, one of them was, uh, uh, I was talk actually, it was a great idea. Been, Jesus is a rescuer, like Gideon was a rescuer. And we could talk about that. But I've actually, my two, I've chosen two. And, and they're contrasts. They're because it's what Gideon wasn't that Jesus became. We've seen one already. Jesus didn't have to ask for signs to confirm the nature of God. He, 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 he really didn't need to go to God for signs to fulfill his, his, his mission. And we know what Jesus' mission was. He comes up twice, actually. In Luke 4, Jesus gives his own mission uh, by quoting Isaiah. But in, in Isaiah 49, 6, it says, It's too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob, and bring back those of Israel I've kept. I'll make you a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. And when the crunch came, Jesus didn't need signs to know that God would help him to do that. Here's the second lesson. Jesus had a very successful teaching and healing ministry. You realise that, don't you? Only the religious leaders hated him. They were threatened by him. They were jealous of him. They wanted him dead. The people loved him. They loved him. I mean, you know, when he, when he healed the guy let down through the roof, on, you know, the paralytic, and he healed and he walked out, the response that the answer we received was, you know, we're going to get him because he's blaspheming. The people said, praise God. And they worshipped. It was a wonderful thing. Their response was to worship. So the people loved him. Imagine being a preacher, all right, and you have a day off with, a, with some friends and you go to the golf course to have a round of golf on your day off because you're, you're relaxing. And when you get there, 10,000 people turn up because 5,000 men plus women and children, right? About 10,000 people turn up and they, they sit down on the grass, wrecking the greens, and they want you to teach them. That's what happened to Jesus. He took his disciples over across the lake, and as he got to the other side, they were waiting for him. And it was his day off. Mark 6. You know, and it's just amazing. And he taught them all day. This man was successful. He was a, he was a, he was a preacher. He was a t- no one talked like Jesus taught, they said. They loved listening to him. So he was successful, quote-unquote, as a teacher and a healer. He had a great ministry. But there came a time, there came a time in his life when he had to choose between that success continuing or continuing to obey his father's will. Because the two didn't coexist together. And we read comments like he set his face to go to Jerusalem, face like Flint to go to Jerusalem. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed, you know, if it's at all possible, let this pass from me. I really don't want to go there. But he was committed. And the humiliation of being slapped around by Roman soldiers, hung naked on a cross, it was the result of my rebellion that took him there, my sin that caused that to happen. And Jesus 
shouted on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is not the success of teaching and healing. This is a commitment to following the mission that God, his father, had given him. And he was committed to the end to see it through. And we forget, don't we? We forget sometimes that we're called to walk with God to the end. Hebrews 12 is fantastic. There's a little phrase. It says this. Let us run with perseverance the race set out for us. Fishing our eyes on Jesus. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, sat down at the right hand of the Father. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners. Why? So that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Got it? So that you will not grow weary. You don't look to Gideon as an example of finishing well. You look to Jesus as an example of finishes well. So that we don't grow weary and lose heart when things are difficult for us and we're really struggling. Jesus set the example of finishing well. But it ended badly in Gideon's case. It says in uh, chapter 8 verse 33, No sooner had Gideon died than the Israelites again prostituted themselves to the Baals. They set up Baal Bereth as their God and didn't remember the Lord their God who'd rescued them from the hands of all their enemies on every side. And the cycle of apostasy started again. Round again. Round they go. But remember this. Gideon is still in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11. <laughs> For all that, he's there, recognised as a man of faith. 